This is a MacKillop Farm Management Group podcast. We acknowledge and respect the traditional owners of the ancestral lands, Potterwich to the north, Jawajali to the east, Bowendick to the south and Meetung to the west of the Limestone Coast region. We acknowledge Elders past and present and we respect the deep feelings of attachment and relationship of Aboriginal peoples to country. Welcome to The Prosperous Farmer, a podcast telling the stories of farmers in the Limestone Coast and Western Victoria. I'm your host, Meg Bell, and joining us today is Tony Catt, Director at Catapult Wealth. Welcome, Tony, and thank you so much for being here today with us. Thanks, Meg. Appreciate it and uh, look forward to having a chat. It's a pretty important or interesting or divisive one, depending on where you sit. And today we're discussing passing the baton and how to work through the generational transfer of farms. Tony, you've got a heap of experience in the finance industry. How did all of this experience that you've got lead to such a special interest in succession planning for family businesses? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, Meg. Is that understanding the, the different parts of the jigsaw puzzle is that a lot of people get help from their lawyers or help from their bankers and help from, from their accountants and it, it, agronomists. Everyone seems to have a part in the whole discussion around succession planning and a very important part. And I guess I found my experience with finance in the finance industry and understanding, not being an expert in any of those parts, but understanding all of those different parts of the jigsaw gave me the experience and the confidence probably to say, hey, how can I pull these bits together? And I think that that experience, knowing enough about banking, knowing enough about having my accounting background, knowing enough about investment markets and, and retirement planning and superannuation gave me a good reason to sort of say I can sit in the middle of some of these things and, and try and make sense of it all for clients. The other reason why I dove headfirst into this area is I married into it. My wife's family are from Peringa in the Riverland. You know, they're a generational farming family as well. And I learned very quickly as an in-law and coming into it that these things are difficult. People you know, need help around it. For me, it's a bit of a passion project, a bit in a way, just to say, hey, let's let's go and help these people. Yeah, there certainly seems to be a lot of accountants or lawyers who can get involved in, in that succession planning process, can't they? And sometimes they've got a lot of the skills, but they might not have all of the skills that's necessary to kind of facilitate a lot of those conversations. So, yeah, I think it's it's a really interesting point that you're sitting in the middle of all of those lots of different moving parts. Well, I think the other interesting thing, a part of that, sometimes some people get caught up about who is the client. And for me, is the family's the client. You know, you're trying to re- reach and, and outcome for the family. And you don't want to be perceived as being on mum and dad's side or son or daughter's side or anything like that. And so it's really important that you go in with that overarching helicopter view of trying to get an outcome for all. Yeah, and trying to pull those different specialties together. You've been focusing on educating ag businesses or farmers on Mm -hmm. how to work through that generational transfer of farms. Do you think it's more complex for agricultural businesses compared to other family businesses or or is it just the same? Look, I don't think it's the same. I do do some succession planning for for non-ag businesses and I think the primary difference is I I honestly think the emotion around it just seems to be slightly elevated. I'm not saying that non-ag farms are non-emotional. They are. They're very attached to their businesses and very emotional about it. There's something about off the land. seems to be a lot of passion. There's a lot of history a lot of the times and whether it's right or wrong, there's a lot of expectation too and I think there's a lot of expectation to try and pass it through generations because that's what my parents did or that's what my grandparents did and 
it puts a lot of undue pressure in, in places perhaps where it shouldn't be, but that's what makes it a little bit unique. And the, the second thing that's made it even more unique recently is just land values. Land values going through the roof, particularly through the last sort of three, four, five years post sort of COVID, has made this a very challenging space and very different to, to I, I guess, non-farming succession plans. Those land prices keep popping up in conversations, don't they? Yeah, and without being a land expert, and nearly unjustifiably are some of them trading where they are as well. And and I guess the other dynamic that sits behind this, I'll call it the big getting bigger mentality, mm. and you see corporate farming sort of entering into this space and that's having an impact. And then I use the phrase sometimes where some farmers are getting caught in a spot where they can't afford to get smaller, but they can't afford to get bigger. And therefore, where do you go from a generational point of view? When, and, and it's, yeah, it's a really challenging space. Yeah, for sure. Why is planning for succession important and why should people do it? Yeah, I think that, I think sometimes probably the easiest way to answer that is if you don't do it, what could happen? And I've seen examples which have probably got to me nearly too late or the outcomes of it. And you could ask plenty of lawyers out there in the country landscape about what happens when you don't plan for it is that communication breaks down, animosity is created, assumptions made, three-way conversations happen. All of these bad emotions can rise to the surface and we've seen families break apart. I'm sure that every district in, in South Australia and Victoria, you know, probably all around Australia has got these stories and a lot of the times, and, and I used this, I was at Pinaroo recently, Meg, and I talked, I got asked about how many times does planning, you know, how many times does it work? And I said, where something's gone wrong when I come in, you know, if you have a, a death, an unexpected death, or you have um, an unexpected event that causes disruption in a family, and then you say, oh, we should start doing some planning now. You find, I find that I can probably solve six out of ten of those you know you, mm. it's hard backtracking over those ones where something's already broken where families have got me involved very early where the kids might be in their teens we started talking about it 10 years ahead of when any potential land transfer or business transfer is being had i know this will sound bad but i believe we get a good outcome of out of those 10 out of 10 times you know where we've we've talked about structuring the the wheels properly we've talked about structuring the evolution of of retirement planning properly and at the end of the day i think all that people want to know is is just a little bit of transparency and communication and so you know they they just want to be involved in the conversation both on farm and off farm and if we can provide that and do that well in advance of anything actually happening you generally get a very good outcome the planning bit is the key word there, you know, get ahead of the game. Yeah, for sure. There's certainly lots of things that can go wrong and break down in the process, isn't there? You just said about planning, that's, yeah, a really key word and phrase that, you know, should be taken into account. What I love about my farming clients is that a lot of them will tell me they do plan, but it sits in their head. Yes. And I 100% agree that a lot of farming clients plan, but they do not communicate their plan or they don't write their plan down and they and they don't challenge the plan or their thinking thought process around, well, is this still a good idea or not? And, and get everybody bought in to the plan. And yeah, I'm not saying that people don't plan, but I think it's then there's still more to it than just thinking about it. 
Yeah, absolutely. That communication piece seems to pop up again and again, doesn't it, Tony? <laughs> um, and I think, you know, having those sorts of skills as somebody in, in this sector is really, really important, which you've definitely got in spades. So I, I reckon your clients are all pretty lucky. Tell us a bit about your approach, Tony. You, you talked about that importance to plan, but how do you actually approach the planning and the frameworks around succession planning when you're working with clients? Yeah, look, I think we, we divide it into two big buckets, Meg, is that the first bucket, and it's an awful way of framing this, and I apologise to everyone listening, is that I put first plan is to do the den plan. You know, recent events all around South Australia tell us that things happen and none of us get to foresee some of these events. And mm. and the premise of behind the den plan is making sure your wills are structured accordingly, your insurances, your risk management, the what-ifs, if something happens to mum, something happens to dad, these sort of what-ifs. As sad and as morbid of the conversations as they are, they're just super important. And you've got to assume in this part of the dead plan that it happened tomorrow. You can't say, oh, yeah, when I'm 95, if I die, then this is what I want to happen. No, no, if it happened tomorrow, how does this business operate? What is going to happen tomorrow? And critically, we, we stress test that a lot. And, and it's, it's a big conversation, but that's, that's part of the framework. The second, Part of it is we call it the living plan. And that's the part that, again, a lot of people get wrong in a sense that they think their dead plan is their living plan and they actually then forget to update their dead plan. So wills get out of day and suddenly you pick up a will 10 years later and reread it and you go, wow, if this happened now, is it still going to be okay? And the short answer mm -hmm. to that a lot of the time is no. And so the living plan really encompasses four major I'll call it mini plans that sit underneath that. So it's a retirement plan for mum and dad. How do you live? You might be 65 today. How does life look like for you for the next 30 years? And a lot of people need to contemplate that. It's, it's an important conversation to have. We talk about then the management plan. So if you do live for the next 30 years, what is the, who's going to run the business? Who's managing the business? Who's doing the day-to-day? -day? What is the, the actual management of the business look like? The third one we talk about is I call it the checkbook plan is normally a lot of farms have the land in one entity, you know, they have the, I call it business structure in another entity that generates the profit and the loss. We're big on making sure that that checkbook, who controls the day-to-day -day cash flow of the organisation, who controls the decision-making is a plan in itself. And the fourth plan, the mini plan is, well, the land like who who ultimately his name and title his name is on the title for mm -hmm. the asset itself and all of them can be done in different time frames and in diff different conversations but it's really important we strip them out and have those individually so lots of small plans to make a bigger plan well and it's, <laughs> it's funny very deliberate because i think a lot of clients get overwhelmed by this conversation and they yeah feel like the whole conversation can get really too hard and therefore when it gets too hard, we know human behaviour is, well, we do nothing and you become uh, paralysed because you, you find it, you know, a lot of clients find it too hard and they also don't want to, they don't want to deal with the confrontation of it, they find the conversations are too difficult and you know what, at the end of the day, it's just easier to go out and do something else. I get it, but having these little mini plans, just you do it in more bite-sized chunks can help people just move forward through it a little bit better. And often you can have so many decisions to make that it's really difficult to know where to start or which one to start with. And and that's the that's when it becomes easy to put things off, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 And, and, and people, human behaviour is we do. 
we don't Trish- like doing things that are uncomfortable or difficult. Yeah, and particularly with our own family. Yeah, absolutely. So, Tony, we talked a bit before about accountants and lawyers and a few other people around the farm. Who should be involved in all of those succession discussions? And as farmers, what sort of outside expertise should we be utilising? From a legal point of view, definitely there's always deeds involved, trust deeds involved, there's um, potentially corporate structures. There's always a legal element to these. It's really important to understand. You'd be amazed at how many times people who've been operating through, I'll call it a family trust structure, a discretionary trust structure for years, but they still don't really understand trustees, appointors, you know, all this stuff, what happens if someone dies, structured stuff. So I think the legal, some legal help around these things is really critical. Accountancy, of course, well, we've got to know the numbers and you have to know particularly a lot of succession plans involve transitioning assets, which could involve capital gains tax, can it have income tax implications? It might have stamp duty implications. And there's all sorts of a myriad of tax laws that we need to, to jump through, which is, which is critical. The other one that I think is really important to take along the journey with you is your banker. The bank normally for a lot of farmers a necessity in life in, in terms of, well, if we do restructure these, how does it affect you, your loan structures or your banking structures, which are critical to, to moving the business forward? So that, that are probably the three that I, I come across the most, you know, like probably in lieu of a mortgage, a bank might be a mortgage broker or somebody like that. And, you know, sometimes from time to time there might be an agronomist, it, you know, there might be other specialties that, that crop up, but they're probably the three big ones that I come across um, that mm-hmm. should be involved in that broader conversation. We've all heard, Tony, some examples of succession planning or processes that, maybe haven't gone as well as everybody would have hoped. Can you share some examples with us where you've seen succession planning go well and and what's been involved with that? Look, I've I've always advocated that where I see it go well is that people talk early and they talk often. And when I say early, I'm saying getting involved with kids as young as 13, 14 years of age and you know, using the talk early, talk often path means that mum and dad start thinking about their journey much earlier than, like, and what's been really pleasing, I believe, over the last 20 years is if I, and I was doing these talks 20 years ago, I would have gone to a country town and said, I'm doing a talk on succession planning, Meg, and I could have shot a gun through a room and not hit anybody. Uh You talk about it 20 years ago. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. No, it's true. I was... It was, and it was a taboo subject. Everyone nearly saw it as a sign of weakness. Everyone's very, very private. They don't want other people to know their business. And I get it. But what I've seen over the last 20 years, and it, it pleases me, is that not only have I seen, I'll call it the current generation of 60 to 70 year olds getting much more proactive and, and advocating in favor of getting this succession planning done, but I'm now starting to see the 40 to 50 year olds deal with it miles in advance. And I've been super happy about that. Not that it creates extra work for me, if anything, but it's just I know that people are now getting ahead of that whole program and they're planning for it so much earlier. And and therefore, when you're talking to a 13-year-old, a 15-year-old, an 18-year-old, a 25-year-old earlier, you are leaving less to chance. You are leaving the, the communications better, the people able to plan better, the next generation understand where that what they, there is or isn't on the table for them as far as careers are concerned. They understand the financial implications of all of this. 
the transparency is way better. Not only do families talk about it earlier, but they also talk about it together, Meg, is really the other critical point I wanted to make to you today is that they don't just talk to one or two of the children about it and leave the other two hanging out to dry. There's family meetings, might be once a year, minimum once a year, call them in, we're just going to reconvene, we're going to talk for a couple of hours about where we're at as a family and what everyone's expectations are. And if we do that once a year for two hours and everyone then gets, bounces out of that, gets on with their own lives, I'll tell you what, you'll be miles in front when the whips start cracking. And the purpose of getting everyone in the same room at the same time is everybody hears the same story. And they also get to hear each other's questions. And so you don't play Chinese whispers around a family, which can often lead to a horrible, horrible outcomes. Together, similar conversations, consistent and early. I hope, mm. I hope that's answered your question. But yeah, that's mm. there's the, the key sort of ingredients that I see that really make it work. Yeah, I think, you know, you, you talked about that communication earlier, but that early and often is a really good thing to take away, isn't it? To yeah. to, to do it and, and to do it openly so that everybody knows what's going on. Yeah, and I think that openness is really something, a barrier that a lot of clients struggle with is that they <laughs> often say to clients, I said, well, if they don't know now, if the kids don't know now, they're going to know at some point. So when mm-hmm. do you, where do you draw the line? Like it's... Yeah. Don't underestimate some of these kids. These they're smart. Yeah, um, they're clever. They have a lot of good input. Um, I think they get underestimated someday. Some of the next gen kids, and I, I just say, you know what? Put your cards on the table. What have you got to lose? For sure. The other thing I was thinking about when you said that about you know getting kids involved or or certainly people as young as possible is that that then helps them make decisions about their own life and gives them the options about, okay, well, yes, I do want to pursue, you know, a career in farming or perhaps actually, no, I want to go and pursue something completely different. And they're making that decision with as much information as they can at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And and, and like a lot, I I say to a lot of clients that you'll be surprised that these kids are having conversations around you without you knowing. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. So, (laughs) I would rather you get inside the tent than stay outside. So let's get inside the tent and have those conversations with them. Yeah, for sure. So, Tony, are there any innovative business structures or frameworks that you've seen that have allowed for a smooth transition? Or are there other approaches perhaps being used in other family businesses that you're aware of that that we might be able to adopt in on-farm or in agricultural businesses? Unfortunately, there's no one-size-fits-all approach. I think I'm hearing more probably over the last three years more around this corporate farming model, which has its pros and cons. Um, when your whole family is involved in some way, that, that I find is a really interesting model that with the big get bigger sort of mentality. For example, you might have four kids that all have 25% equity in the, I'll call it the farm, but one kid might lease it from the other four or one child might run it and get paid a salary, but all four families share in the, you know, the dividends or the, pro- the profit and loss of the farm. I'm seeing that conversation have certainly more and more. And definitely the one that I'll, I'll advocate for is just this concept of advisory boards or getting together on a regular two, three times a year, have your, your accountant slash advisors get around a table, financial planner or whatever it is, and, and invite the kids to that meeting perhaps as well from time to time and so that they start to you're actually i think it's culturally saying something about your organization or your family saying culturally we stand for communication we're 
open, honest, transparent. I always ask families, well, your behaviour, you know, you get judged by even your culture is judged by what you do. What by by your meeting structures and the way you run your business, what are you telling your kids about your culture? It's not necessarily innovative, but those sort of advisory board structures um, definitely work and, and are a good cultural way of, of showing to the kids, yes, we, we, we value communication and value transparency. So what are some of the pitfalls to avoid or things that, that might maybe might need to be addressed that are a bit more uncomfortable in this process? Keeping things a secret. The common communication pitfalls are three-way conversations. If you've got a problem, talk to that person directly. You know, don't go around the cape to get to those persons. No Chinese whispers, open, honest, transparent conversation all at once. Don't play the he said, she said games. It, that's just, it's a, again, a nightmare. Going probably, I think, open-minded to some of these processes. Um, I think it's probably another, be open to ideas, be open to different models, be open to different suggestions. And you know, I think that's critical because I think if you walk in a bit closed-minded, you walk in saying this is the way that I've got to do it, I think that can lead to poor outcomes as well. I'm not saying that it's always a problem, but it can be a problem. The other thing that I, I think an often pitfall is don't underestimate the off-farm children. I describe the off-farm children as emotional owners. They not, may not be financial owners, but they're emotional owners, and you can't underestimate that emotional ownership over the farm. And my wife is you know, one of those, and, and they care. They give a crap about what goes on to the farm, and it's where they had their 16th birthdays. They might have their 21st or 18th out there. It's... You know, you know they, they have a big connection and, and therefore I talk about getting their perspective and lens on how this might work, I, I, I think it's critical. And, and sometimes when you you ignore them, I think it can be to your detriment. And the last one I'll probably say is a pitfall is that you you don't get the in-laws involved. And I know I'm speaking mm. from a biased point of view, Meg, <laughs> but I, you know, I'm not saying that at different levels you can get the in-laws involved, but they're a critical part of the puzzle and... You know, it's who your kids love and it's who your kids have decided to have a life with. Well, you know, I think they're they're valuable and they're important and they can actually bring a different perspective to a lot of these conversations that perhaps others can't. So I, I think valuing the in-laws in this is important. Again, if you cut them out, what message are you sending them? Which is what I worry about more. Something that I've heard others say about succession planning is that what's fair is not always equal and what's yeah. equal is not always fair. And yeah, I think that really probably comes into play, particularly when we're talking about those children that are off farm or yeah. in-laws as well. So yeah, something I think really good, a good mantra to have. Everyone's got their different lens on it. And I, and I say to clients that this, this whole process is an art, not a science. You know, there is no cookie cutter. Here's the A plus B equals C mentality. It's an art. Like you look at an artwork, and some people look at the artwork and go, "Oh, that looks horrible." And other people look at it and see it's beauty. Well, that's yeah. sometimes what succession <laughs> planning is. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, Tony, what do you think your top tips are for effectively working through that generational transfer of farms? Be open to help. Don't make any assumptions about what people's perspective. Uh, is on the farm and what should happen to it. So no assumptions. As I said, to talk early, to talk often and talk together as a group. 
be open to ideas, be open to options. Ultimately, you know, my number one tip here is is have a plan, you know, mm-hmm. and it may not be a plan in concrete, but it might be in in pencil, but it's it, it's a plan that everybody knows where they're working towards, what they're working um, through, and plans change. I get it. You know, things happen and, and plans change. Understanding where everyone's trying to head is really critical here. And I know I put a bit of pressure on, I'll call it the 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 older generation here, mum and dad, I use the phrase colloquially, is that, you know, you go, that they're normally the first domino to fall because if the kids can't see where mum and dad's vision is or where they're heading or what they want from it all, it's very hard for the next set of layers to really get, you know, get full in behind. And so it starts at the top. We have to get the vision right. We have to get the direction right and the planning right. And then it works its way through. The other trap, probably not a tip, but a trap is, I call it Mexican standoffs, Meg, that people need to avoid is that where a lot of families I come across, you've got mum and dad sitting there going, oh, we're just waiting to hear from the kids to hear what they want. And we just, you know, we want them to come up with a plan and da 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 da. And of course, when you go and talk to the kids, Kids go, well, we're just waiting for mum and dad to come up with a plan. Yeah. At the end of the day, none of them are talking to one another and <laughs> call that a Mexican standoff. So let's not get into those traps and, and let's have these open conversations early mm. off. Some really good tips. Thanks, Tony. So y- you mentioned you've seen quite a bit of change over the last 20 or so years. What's your prediction for the next 10? How do you think family and family businesses and, and succession planning might change in the next 10 years? Yeah, I think it's going to get really interesting. <laughs> it's uh, with the with the values going through the roof. Man, I think back in the nineteen eighties in South Australia, we had forty thousand farming entities. We went to two thousand. We had twenty thousand. I think the last data point in twenty twenty, we had ten thousand. Mm. And and of course, HR on farms is going to become a bigger as the farms get bigger. So HR becomes a bigger and bigger issue. So managing people. Who's mm. got the skill set to not just be an agronomy, like on the agronomy side, but do you, can you deal with a team of 10 people and manage the HR side of it? We, I think we're going to see different skill sets. I think we're going to see more fly in, fly out. You don't have to be at Tumby Bay, you know, to manage a farm. You might be living in Port Lincoln. You could be living in Adelaide. I, I yeah. you know, I, I think that, that, that whole we, we live where we farm mentality may not hold particularly as the next generation washes through. So I think the skill set's going to change. I think the conversation's going to change because of the size and and technology, of course, will probably help foster these things as well. So I, yeah, I think there's going to be some big changes. I've heard others talk about that HR shift or that change that they might have anticipated to happen. And you're right, as businesses get bigger, those skills that are needed to manage staff and manage people and yeah timelines and you know machinery and logistics absolutely yeah that that becomes a a whole job in and of itself doesn't it you can imagine 30 years ago 50 years ago dad or grandpa didn't sign up for any of that stuff they just got Um, up and they did what they loved and they grew wheat or cattle sheep whatever they do and that's great but when you're dealing with a team of 10 your, your skill set changes and your your priorities change, and and some people go, well, hang on, I didn't sign up for this, and, and they don't they don't like where it goes. That's a good conclusion to come to, though, too, isn't it? I don't like doing that, so therefore I'm not going to. Yeah, that's right. But yeah. I would rather do that sooner rather than later. To some Absolutely. Degree. But you know, some people have to go through that evolution to figure out what they like. 
So, Tony, if someone's been listening today and they think, you know, maybe we're just starting to have those conversations or maybe we haven't started and we think we really should, where can they go to learn more? So we've got the Pass the Baton podcast and I think you can go to catapultworld.com.au to to go and download the the podcast. We've got over 20 episodes where I've interviewed lawyers and accountants and bankers and farmers and, and all sorts of general experts, which have been great. It's important that people probably can listen to the podcast like this one in their own time and, and, and mull over their thoughts. And I've always found that a good source of help. There's a variety of facilitators in this state. We're actually blessed in this state, I think, with a variety of really good quality people that can help move these things forward. And But, you know, for me, just starting with the starting with the podcast and collecting your thoughts and, and going from there, that I think that would be a good start. What does the future hold for you? Where are you heading? What What's your next biggest exciting thing well, that's I, happening? I, I'm pleased to say, Megan, you know, I, this has been two years in the making post. I'm right, still writing a book on all this Fantastic. stuff. So I am three, halfway through it. What I've done is I've pulled all the data, like, all everything from all the podcasts, from all my meetings, and I'm trying to, I'm hoping it'll happen in the next six months. So, yes, a little book about all the things I've learned along this journey of 30 years so far and, that is going to happen. I promise all the listeners that <laughs> soon enough we'll have a book. So that is, that, and it'll be nice. I'm a big, big reader and I love books. And I think it's nice that, you know, people have a bit of a resource there they can go to down the track. Yeah, for sure. That's really exciting. Congratulations and well done. I wish you the yeah, best yeah, in getting I it finished. I got to get this thing done, yeah. <laughs> Well, Tony, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's been a pleasure okay. chatting with you. And I think we've we've discussed some really useful and important things. So I hope our listeners have got a lot out of it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for listening to The Prosperous Farmer, a McKillop Farm Management Group production. You can rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube at McKillop Group or check out our website at www.mckillopgroup.com.au. Thanks for listening and see you next time.